0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Radio Dispatch, Melissa Harris-Perry, Counterspin, On the Media, This Week in Blackness, The Media Matters Minute, and The Daily Show. And don't worry, after this depressing episode on racism in the media, I'll move on to a lighter topic like civilization endangering global warming.
1: Whether it's intentional or unintentional, there seems to be a double standard in the way the press covers stories about shootings. Now, if you notice headlines, it always seems like the press is a lot nicer or kinder to white shooters versus black victims of shootings. And uh, there is a compilation of certain headlines that kind of make that point. Now, before I uh, read you these headlines and give you the explanations of the stories behind them, I do want to note that when you compare and contrast them, they don't come from the Exact same publication, so it could be true that while one publication seems to be uh, very nice to white shooters, they could probably also be very nice to black uh, victims, very right? Very
2: likely. Very likely.
1: <laughs> no, I know, I know, but no. it's, but look, if you. The reason why I say that is because I don't want to be misleading, right? So if we had, let's say, the the Huffington Post or the Washington Post, just some random publication, and we gave you a list of all the different headlines they had and you compared those, then it's indisputable, right? But in this case, you have a number of different publications.
2: Of course, and it's a random, uh, it's not random, they selected it for a reason, uh, but it's a collection of things that don't necessarily represent the entirety of those newspapers and the uh, media overall. Now, having said that... When you read them all, uh, as Anna will in a second, you get a, begin to get a sense of a pattern. And it's a pattern I've seen my whole life covering the news. So it was an interesting compilation that they put together.
1: All right, so let's go to uh, the first uh, headline, and it's regarding a white suspect from Alabama. The headline says, Alabama suspect, brilliant, but social misfit. And that was the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, and they chose to represent Amy Bishop in that way. Amy Bishop was a former college professor who eventually pleaded guilty to killing three colleagues and wounding three others at a faculty meeting in 2010, okay? So, brilliant, um, misfit, interesting way of putting things, right? Now, let's look at a black victim. Montgomery's largest homicide victim had history of narcotics abuse, tangles with the law.
2: Latest homicide victim. Um, And this is something that I've pointed out on many instances here without this. Like, just uh, in the L.A. shooting that happened a a couple of days ago, they said uh, the victim... Uh, was not it's it's not known whether he was had gang affiliations then why did you write that yeah <laughs> okay so even though they're victims they're the ones who got killed um, a history of narcotics abuse tangles with the law it, it the headline screams he had it coming mm-hmm. right the shooters well they were just misfits but look tip of the iceberg we had a lot more
1: yeah and by the way that was from al.com they're the ones who ran that uh, headline i want to give you the sources all right so let's go to a white suspect Son in Staten Island murders was brilliant, athletic, but his demons were the death of parents. And that was regarding um, a story that the Staten Island uh, Advance wrote about Eric Bellucci. He was a mentally ill New York man who allegedly killed his parents.
2: Yeah. And there's a little bit of, of course, hey, when somebody does a, a, a terrible shooting, like what went wrong? Oh, we don't understand. He was a good guy before, and all of a sudden he did the shooting. Now, look, they don't cover it in this article, but you could also do headlines regarding. White shooters versus Muslim shooters. Mm-hmm. I don't believe I've ever seen a Muslim shooter be called brilliant. Not like, oh, eccentric Muslim was brilliant and wonderful, but was a misfit. Yeah. No, it's a dangerous Muslim does terrorist operation inside the United States. Yes. So uh, somehow the white shooters seem to be misfits a lot, even though they were otherwise brilliant.
1: It's just, th- that double standard definitely exists. And I think a perfect example of that would be how the press covered Trayvon Martin, right? So look at this headline from NBC News. Uh, they said, Trayvon Martin was suspended three times from school. Remember, Trayvon Martin was the victim of a shooting. He died. This is a headline that they published about him after he died. Compare that to a Fox News headline about uh, Jared Michael uh, Padgett. He, uh, Oregon school shooting suspect fascinated with guns but was a devoted Mormon, his friends say.
2: (laughs) Okay, now, again, I'm going to go back to the Muslim point for a second. Let me just switch it up on you. Oregon school shooting suspect, fascinated with guns, but was a devoted Muslim, his friends say. (laughs) I just can't. I don't think that there would be a but in that sentence. (laughs) Okay? You just see the framing. It's fascinating, that's all.
1: It, It is incredible. So let's go to another black victim. Police slain Lakeland teen, Had been shot before. Death, possibly drug-related. And that was a headline um, in the ledger in Florida.
2: Almost all those victim ones seem to say, well, they had it coming. I mean, look, he was a bad guy anyway. Don't sweat.
1: And finally, (laughs) um, there was a headline about the Santa Barbara shooter. This is in the Whittier Daily News. Um, Santa Barbara shooting. Suspect was soft-spoken, polite, a gentleman, ex-principal says. (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay. I mean, how much more can they go out of their way to say, what a what lovely this guy who killed all those folks was. And, again, they're trying to make sense of it. I understand why they frame it that way. But why don't you give the same benefit of the doubt to black victims? Right. You know? How? How often? Look, sometimes I, I'm sure that they have nice things written about victims at different times. But far too often, you're getting these things like they were somehow related to drugs or not related to drugs, related to gangs or not related to gangs. But it's in the title, right?
1: I think what was telling about the Trayvon Martin case was how they immediately performed a toxicology exam on him, but not on Zimmerman, Mm -hmm. right? And, And it was because there's this immediate assumption that the person of color or the minority in the story or in the case is the person who was under the influence of drugs or had some sort of gang affiliation. And it's a certain bias and a certain prejudice that some people have in their subconscious I don't think that there are people who are overtly racist or overtly discriminating against other people I think it's the certain stereotypes that we've all bought into because of the mass media because of maybe some personal experiences who knows what it is right and we have to have an open dialogue about it so we can combat it we can't pretend like it doesn't exist it's obviously clear in the way the media covers it it's clear in the way that we react to these types of stories And it's clear in the way law enforcement reacts to these types of stories.
2: Look, I don't think that the writers of these titles in majority are overt racists that go around using the N-word, saying you know how they are, whatever. No, they don't quite realize how they're framing things. And part of the reason to do this story and Huffington Post did a great job with this is to show it to you so you go, oh, wait, maybe maybe we are subconsciously thinking things that's not quite fair. And then when you put it down in the media and that's your screaming title... Well, that's how it goes into everybody else's head.
3: So obviously there was a huge reaction to the no-angel profile of Mike Brown. Probably don't need to rehash that here. I think most people probably have a pretty good sense of what that was. Mm -hmm. Margaret Sullivan, the Times ombudsman, ombudsperson, public editor. Uh, Wade N. Sullivan is without question the best public editor that the Times has had in recent memory. Uh, yeah, she's Ar- consistently Ar- fantastic. Arthur Brisbane <laughs> doesn't really hold a candle. What to was his her. thing?
4: Oh, he's should a- the times be truth vigilante? Yeah,
3: he's the truth vigilante guy. He looks like he would be sipping tea out of the the queen's china, like on some fancy pantsy <laughs> beach in the Hamptons or something, and. <laughs> you know, wearing an all-white suit, discussing the nuances of, like, the race problem. <laughs> that's basically... That's perhaps slightly unfair to, to Ambassador Brisbane. I don't think he's an actual ambassador. But, um, yeah, but Sullivan is fantastic. Unfortunately, in this case, I think that she did not live up to as awesome as she has been in the past.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, in I, I think that many... Many people were sort of largely underwhelmed by her her response. Certainly, I, I think everyone was underwhelmed by the editor and the writers, the the, the reporters' responses. They were they were deeply unsettling, and Sullivan's. What, Response was not quite as bad, but didn't still was not as good as, as I think a lot of people had hoped it would be.
4: Right. And of course, when you know this it brings up kind of various questions if when criticizing this, this particular profile of Mike Brown, like what amount of um of responsibility falls on the shoulders of the, of the writer, um, who by the accounts of many, many people is, you know, is fantastic. It is like no strange, I mean, he's a black man who has experienced racial profiling himself, Mm -hmm. uh, since he's lived in the Midwest.
3: Yeah. The anecdote about him, uh, covering a court case and a court officer telling him to wait for his lawyer. (laughs) That is stunning. Oh my God. I
4: mean, yeah, that is, that is that is amazing, his name is John Allegian or Allegian, i 'm not sure um, and so you know it's not i don 't think any of us mean to engage in a pile on on this particular writer or to say that this is all this is, he did a terrible job right it's, I, don't, I think it 's much bigger than that, and I think that the response the negative response to this particular piece has to it's obviously exists in a much bigger t- context of of how our young black victims of state violence portrayed that this is not the first time that a black teenager is demonized essentially for his liking rap music or his dabbling in drugs and alcohol so sullivan's response was and the editor's response was basically he wasn't demonized he was humanized and there's this this uh, quote from the editor that says uh, basically what the profile did was say that he's human and, and that's a
3: direct quote
4: yeah And our response to that was, well, of course he's human. Right. It's not a challenge to humanize. Why should it be a challenge to humanize a child, a young man, victim of violence, who didn't do anything? Right. He's not a murderer. He's not a criminal. He's not, even if he was, right, he was, like, the context under which he was killed, he was the victim. Why do you deserve praise for humanizing a human?
3: Right. Why is that the editorial goal? Right. To show that he's human? Right. And my, I mean, my sort of take on that is that, and this was, this is uh, adopted partially, or or this thought is inspired by a post over at Salon by Katie McDonough mm-hmm. talking about the profile of Johar Sarnayev that uh, Janet Reitman wrote for Rolling Stone. So she, so she sort of, you know, examined how part of the function of white supremacy is that even in the face of kind of unimaginable terror, horror, um, bad, bad actions, etc., white people get to retain their humanity.
4: Mm-hmm. And that and idea was also put forth by in an essay by uh, Roxane Gay that is, I think, in her book Bad Feminist. Just for also full, right. full credit to the amazing Roxane Gay.
3: Um, so you know, sort of keeping that in mind, and then thinking about this this comment from the editor from from mitchell when she says basically the story shows that he's human and so what you have here uh, internalized in in the uh, a national editor for the new york times is the exact opposite of the of what it should be right mm-hmm. so the reason that the rolling stone profile was so good and so uh so brave and i think such a a valuable piece of reporting and journalism is because it takes a figure who is being demonized throughout the entire media landscape. I mean, he's the most hated domestic terrorist since Timothy McVeigh, mm-hmm. and perhaps even... Uh, you know and and because he you know is muslim there's all sorts of like added mm-hmm. animosity and and you know all of that so you take so you take Sarnayev, and instead of accepting he's a monster who was radicalized etc etc you look at him and you say what happened what happened to this human being let's mm-hmm. look at him as a human being and let's write about him as a human being and that takes incredible bravery and incredible talent to do it correctly mm-hmm. and Uh, and so what you have is on the one hand, Sarnayev, who is a perpetrator of an act of terrorism to the extent that terrorism has any meaning. The Boston bombing certainly fits in the definition of terrorism. And then you have Mike Brown, who is arguably the victim of state terrorism, Mm -hmm. which perhaps might seem hyperbolic to some people, but for the sake of argument, Let's say that, I mean, he, he is the victim of state terrorism. And so it's people on the exact opposite of the two spectrums given the exact same treatment by two media outlets. Right. And the Times um, offering that exact same treatment as justification of the nobleness of their project. Mm-hmm. And it's the the fact that it's a complete inversion, I think, can only be attributed to white supremacy. Every day I see
6: on my TV,
5: a people on the news look just like me. Are we the only one committing crime? Are we the only ones
7: doing the time?
5: No, really.
8: let, me, uh, That's right.
3: let me think about that one, y'all.
7: A dose of white supremacy. A dose of white supremacy. They keep on giving you and me. They keep on, they keep
2: on, they keep on, they keep on, they keep
7: on. Blackmail, black, male, mm. black cloudy day. Black.
9: Black day, black cloud, black cat devils, food
6: angels, food, yeah, yeah. The injustices and unrest in Ferguson, Missouri have given us weeks of stunning images and in some cases a cringeworthy analysis of the uprisings. That's why my letter this week is to Time Magazine's political columnist, Joe Klein. Dear Joe, it's me, Melissa. I'm writing to you today about your column Beyond a Simple Solution for Ferguson. You write, at first it seemed a perfect metaphor for 400 years of oppression. A white police officer shoots an unarmed black teenager multiple times. He's shot with his hands up, it is reported, at least once in the back. Joe, when a community is reeling from an unarmed teen shot to death, When his body was left for hours in plain view of the community, when no arrests have been made for his slaying, when those who are protesting the killing are met with militarized local police force and tear gas, it is not a metaphor. The people of Ferguson and the nation are mourning the death of a real person. They are responding to actual events and actions taken by the local government. That this death and those actions are consistent with a long history of similar deaths and actions makes them historically rooted, not metaphorical. But the perfection of the metaphor is soon blurred by facts, he writes. The gentle giant Michael Brown Jr. seems pretty intimidating in a surveillance video. Joe? Seems pretty intimidating is not a fact. The fact is a surveillance video shows an apparent petty crime, one that Officer Wilson did not know about when he stopped Michael Brown, and one that does not carry a death sentence, even if a person is guilty of committing it. An autopsy requested by Brown's parents shows six bullet wounds. The kill shot is into the top of the victim's head, which raises another possibility that the officer, Darren Wilson, fired in self-defense. Joe, it is certainly a possibility, but let us traffic in facts. Officer Wilson was armed. Michael Brown was not. Officer Wilson shot Michael Brown. Michael Brown is dead. Officer Wilson has not been arrested. On the day that the Ferguson police finally made Officer Wilson's name public, They also released a surveillance video you mentioned, despite knowing that it had no bearing on the officer's decision to stop Michael Brown. Those are the facts. You cite these statistics. Blacks represent 13% of the population but commit 50% of the murders. 90% of black victims are murdered by other blacks. Joe, if you want to just cite random crime facts that have nothing to do with this case, how about this one? 83% of white victims are murdered by other white people. Your statistics about black homicide perpetrators have nothing to do with what happened August 9th. We know who shot Michael Brown to death, and it wasn't a black man. And how about this statistic? On average, between 2006 and 2012, nearly two times a week in the United States, a white police officer killed a black person. Twice a week. That fact would suggest Michael Brown had plenty of reason to be afraid, of Darren Wilson. Now you go on, a debilitating culture of poverty persists among the urban underclass. Black crime rates are much higher than they were before the Civil Rights Movement. Joe, the American crime rate overall, regardless of the race of the perpetrator or victim, is higher than it was in 1960. And crime has dropped precipitously since its peak in the 1980s and 90s. And it is not culture but rather poverty that is debilitating because it severely reduces access to sufficient nutrition, housing, health care, educational opportunities, and sustainable employment. As for the culture of poverty, is it American jazz, blues, or hip-hop that you're referring to because those are some of the cultural products of the black American poor? And in conclusion, you write, Absent a truly candid conversation about the culture that has emerged from slavery and segregation, These problems won't be solved at all, Joe. We have finally found a place of agreement. The culture that emerged from slavery and segregation does require a candid conversation. We need to lay bare the implicit assumptions held by many of white superiority and black inferiority that come from slavery and segregation. Curfews, militarized police, tear gas deployed on people exercising their First Amendment rights and public officials who insist there is no race problem and that outside agitators are responsible for all the trouble definitely appears to be the residue of a cultural pathology bred by the legacy of segregation. Now, Joe, I would be very interested in having a candid conversation about that.
9: Time coming since the days of the niggers. Whips change legends, human cotton pickles. Take a look around, ain't a whole lot changed. Plantations projects close to being the same. They came up with a way to keep the black man down. A new day and age, and it's still
10: working out. The killing of Michael Brown, an African American man, by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, posed a test for corporate media. The story was hard to avoid once the local community came out in protest, still ongoing, and were met harshly by police. Probably more significant for the press corps, the online community, in this case largely black social media, erupted in pain and anger, with some of their criticism directed at the press itself. Some media have hewed to troubling practices that privilege police accounts and play up the specter of unruly mobs as with the USA Today story that rhetorically balanced angry calls for reform with tear gas lobbed at protesters in a piece that glossed the use of dogs, submachine guns, and riot gear as police-seeking order. And some will always choose to bland it out, like the L.A. Times reference to, quote, an unsettled national conversation over race and policing, close quote. The surprise, then, has been the extent to which some media seem to be taking the outcry seriously, talking about the militarization of police brought home by the rough treatment given to reporters covering the story and the criminalization of black people. But there's still a question of how deep they'll delve. Media were especially taken with the hashtag campaign, If They Gunned Me Down?, in which black men posted two different pictures of themselves, one in cap and gown, for instance, and another in which they looked tougher or rougher, and rhetorically asked which image media would use if they were killed by police. The campaign garnered a front-page story in the New York Times and a Time magazine plotted for hashtag activism done right. Sadly, the point wasn't that it was an interesting question, but that we already know the answer.
6: 15 days
8: after the shooting of an unarmed black teenager by a white police officer, the violence and unrest in the streets appear to have subsided. Obviously, the killing of unarmed black people by mostly white police or just trigger happy white people has gone on for a long, long time, long before the death of Michael Brown in Missouri two weeks ago or of Trayvon Martin in Florida two years ago. It's just that now the media are paying more attention. As MSNBC's Tremaine Lee told us last week...
5: Since the killing of Trayvon Martin, you've had the killing of Jordan Davis in Jacksonville, Florida, by someone who began an altercation with this young man over his loud music and fired into his car. The Radisha McBride case in Detroit, where a young woman showed up at someone's doorstep and they fired a shotgun through a screen door and tore off half of her face. Jonathan Farrell in Charlotte, North Carolina, he gets in a car accident. He shows up at someone's door looking for help. She called the police. They end up gunning this young man down, again, unarmed. Eric Garner, more recently in New York City, selling loose cigarettes, died in a police chokehold. In each one of these cases, there was a mass of media around it.
8: He's right. The template for that coverage was set in March of 2012, some 10 days after 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was shot by a neighborhood watch captain. Ever since, the responses to these deaths by the public and the media has followed the same general trajectory, the same pattern. But Trayvon's story took the longest to take off in the mainstream. CBS
10: was comparatively early, but look at the lag time. Tracy Martin's teenage son was shot dead on this patch of grass ten days ago. And the gunman belonged to a neighborhood watch group.
8: Then public protest mounted, though more contained than what would transpire later in Ferguson. After a couple of weeks... Let's call it the context about Trayvon's character swept into the headlines. Ranging from the chemical, Martin had traces of marijuana in his blood, to the sartorial.
11: I think the hoodie is as much responsible for Trayvon
10: Martin's death as George Zimmerman was.
8: Twitter played a big role, spawning communities with such hashtags as hoodies and skittles and I am Trayvon Martin. And then the president weighed in.
9: Uh, I think all of us have to do some soul searching to figure out how does something like this happen.
8: It was an uncharacteristically personal call for introspection.
5: You know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon.
8: And as the public waited for justice to be served or not.
9: No justice.
5: No justice.
8: The Reverend Al Sharpton showed up.
5: All over the world, they're calling for justice for Trayvon.
8: So, that's the pattern. You have the killing, the protest, mainstream media catching on, the hashtags, attempts to explain the killing of unarmed people with how they looked or what they smoked or drank or did or may not have done at some other time. Then Sharpton shows up, some high official speaks, and then someone invokes a national conversation.
3: There is much more to this issue than news headlines, so we invite you to take part in a national town hall about
10: race relations in America. What are the challenges, what are the solutions to unity?
8: For Jordan Davis, like Trayvon, also 17, also killed in Florida the same year, in Jordan's case by a man who said he felt threatened by the expletive-laced rap music blasting from the kid's car and who also claimed to see a gun that was never found, the arc of the coverage was the same, but highly accelerated. Then, November 2nd, 2013, 19-year-old Renisha McBride crashes her car in a Detroit suburb and then loudly knocks on the window and door of a house, whereupon the owner fires a shotgun blast through the door into her face. Initially, the coverage is only local. Then the family speaks out, igniting protests and hashtags. And a few days after that, the networks jump in. Congressman John Conyers speaks. Al Sharpton speaks. The toxicology report says she was drunk. Her lifestyle, derived in part from her cell phone photos, is discussed. And finally, there's a call for a national conversation, in her case, about Stand Your Ground laws, which Michigan, like Florida, also has. Last month in Staten Island, Eric Garner's horrifying death in a police chokehold is captured on video. The mainstream media arrives as swiftly as the protests and hashtags and Al Sharpton. We quickly learn Garner was selling loose cigarettes. Hey, that's not legal. And then, as the widely read website Fox notes, it sparks a national conversation about the use of force by police officers. Next up the coverage of the death of Michael Brown the story with the fastest trajectory and the widest coverage the world is shocked i mean egypt urges the us to respect peaceful free expression and amnesty international sends a team of observers researchers and trainers for the first time to america to ferguson When Michael Brown is shot by police in the middle of the street on Saturday, August 9th, protests and mainstream media coverage begin immediately. Twitter plays a big role, especially the hashtag, if they gunned me down, an instant rebuttal to the wide release of the teenager scowling and splaying his fingers in what some call a gang sign, others a peace sign. The demonstrations escalate sharpton arrives calling for calm
10: some of us are making the story
9: how mad we are rather than how promising he was don't be a traitor to michael brown in the name of you man
8: and the pattern reasserts itself see if you can spot it
2: new information this morning out of ferguson missouri police they're connecting michael brown to what's called a strong armed robbery He might have been affected uh, by the marijuana so that he, that he may have been acting in a crazy way.
5: I just cannot believe that this is the tactic that this police chief and his administration are using to try to make this young man be deserving to be gunned down in the street like a dog.
2: President Obama released a statement on this case just about 90 minutes ago. He says the death of Michael Brown is heartbreaking and Michelle and I send our deepest condolences to his family and his community at this very difficult time.
9: We have to have a national conversation about uh, how police forces should interact with the African American community who happens to be paying their salary, who want to be served and protected. Let's
8: observe that the way these stories unspool in real time and on social media and soon everywhere else mostly works to the benefit of all concerned. First, to those long-ignored communities that suddenly have a global opportunity to be heard. And to those outside concerned with social justice. And to those news outlets that see ratings spike and, less cynically, a chance for relevant, important coverage. But when we heard Tremaine's list of the dead at the top of the show, he included one man who, you should pardon the expression, didn't fit the profile – Jonathan Farrell, who knocked on a woman's door in Charlotte, North Carolina, last September, seeking help after a car accident, prompting a panicked 911 call, and ultimately his own death from a policeman's gun. That story didn't go massively viral, because here's what happened the very next day.
0: Tonight, Chief Rodney Monroe
1: solemnly answered the questions neighbors, friends of the victim and Channel 9 had about the shooting.
10: Homicide investigators uh, signed warrants for uh, Officer Carrick for the charge of voluntary manslaughter.
8: The chief made no attempt to justify what happened, and he gave the public a name. Officer Randall Carrick. Two days later, the PD released audio tapes of Carrick speaking to the dispatcher. And now, after the state's initial failure to indict Carrick, he's awaiting trial. To be sure, there's no happy ending, but it was a reasonable start. Whether the shooter is an officer or a civilian, it's police departments that ultimately determine how the story is told. This power to attract or deflect the press is probably the most powerful weapon in their highly militarized arsenals. But they haven't used it. Maybe it seems hard. Maybe they haven't seen the value. Maybe they will now.
0: One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restraint. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
3: Specifically looking at media coverage Mm -hmm. and what are the... What are the tropes that we see in media coverage, either when it comes to Ferguson or when it comes to reporting on Gaza? And in each of those cases, who gets to be innocent?
4: And who gets to be human? Who
3: gets to be human? Yep. Who is cast as the aggressor? Yep. And who is cast as the responder? Mm-hmm and who is cast as the authority and who is cast as inherently untrustworthy you know i've seen so many people on twitter over the past couple of days tweeting in frustration that things don't seem to have happened until a white person sees them yes. happen and that's right. who
4: gets to even bear witness yeah who yeah.
3: gets who gets to bear witness and who gets to be a credible uh, a credible witness yeah and it's not as simple as white people get to and black people don't get to. But if you start with that as your fundamental principle, you'll be a lot closer than if you say there's no difference and everyone gets to be witnessed equally. It's much closer to the simple... White people get to, black people don't get to.
4: Yeah. And that's even, we've even been seeing that with the treatment of journalists in Ferguson. Yeah,
3: Yeah, there were, uh, yeah, various um, reports of of press letting white reporters into media staging areas and keeping black reporters out. Mm -hmm.
4: A reporter named uh, Mustafa Hussein was threatened with, the police officer threatened to shoot him. Yeah. Shoot him.
3: (laughs) And I mean, it's also, you know, we have to note that Chris Hayes was threatened with Maze. With Maze, yeah. So it's... Again, when it comes to reporters, it's it's not as though only black reporters are being targeted, but it, in the same way that, that having black skin makes you a target for police on a greater level than having white skin, it's, that's also true of reporters. Right,
8: right.
7: I bet if scientists could figure out some way in a lab to to fix racism, they probably could. You'd probably find some people who are trying to, you know, pour some hydrogen peroxide in with some rubbing alcohol, create some elixir that, you know, they can feed to cops to drink it to make them less racist. No
12: way, no how. Racism is a part of the American culture like baseball. (laughs) It's true. Baseball,
7: apple pie, and
12: racism. Racism. Baseball, apple pie, and the idea that some race somewhere is inferior to you. -hmm. (laughs) That's at the end of the day that you are better than someone. So even if we, even if there was a cure for racism, that person would be mysteriously hit by a black SUV while driving home to tell their wife about how awesome it is they cured racism. That'd be it. That'd be it. God forbid, God forbid, America loses a part of itself—that important, that vital part of itself.
7: Yeah, that's true. Racism is woven into the fabric, and you know, if anyone tried to to cure it, I think you're right. It's, time. One,
12: it's one of the reasons. It's one of the. It's one of the things about Barack Obama's presidency. For uh, however you feel about him, I, I find it rather interesting that he kind of he fast forwarded everything because I think a lot of people were surprised at how racist America could get. So once yep. you put a black guy at the top, then everyone's looking up at the black guy, then everyone's showing their face, and that's when we didn't, you know, it was ben- it was beneficial to actually see just how deep these roots actually go.
7: Pretty damn deep.
12: Yep. Pretty
7: damn deep. More and more racism news. Yeah. You know that New York TV stations disproportionately cover crimes committed by black
12: people. No. What? Yeah. No.
7: What? I mean, it's shocking, I know. What? I mean, the media actually I mean, portraying black people as criminals? You I mean,
12: know, former billionaire mayor focusing on black, black, black criminals, our police department being trained to go seek out black criminals, and then uh, mm-hmm. the TV reporting black crimes more? Come
7: on. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm shocking as it is. New York City television stations disproportionately cover crimes committed by black people, according to a new report released by Media Matters. African suspects have been arrested in 54% of murders, 55% of thefts, and 49% of assaults Television stations covered murders of which 68% of suspects were African American, 80% of the suspects of theft were African American, and 72% of the suspects of assaults were African American. And just yesterday we talked about the burgeoning problem that is white on white crime. So maybe, maybe we need to have, maybe we need to get these, get some new news anchors on there to talk about, to talk to them, their people, talk to their audience (laughs) about white on white crime because like why, you know, black people? You yeah, would, we, we commit some crimes, with white people.
12: You white would think, and the thing about it is, it even even though we were joking, if you want to go crazy with white on white crime, white on white crime is so extreme that sometimes a white dude will pick up a gun and open up on a room full of white people. Mhm. Like, do you realize? How, do you realize? Do you realize that the, the 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 lack of the the massive social degradation that has to go a group of people, so that one person grabs a high powered assault rifle and it opens up on another group of people. But we're yeah. we're not allowed to say that he was clearly mentally ill. It was an isolated incident, and that right. white people still maintain their innocence. It's very important.
7: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just the other day I was complaining about there aren't any black serial killers. White people not only do white people open up fire on rooms of other white people, they they'll kidnap them and eat them, make s- skin suits out of them, yeah. just keep them in in wells in their backyard. Yeah. There's a lot of weird shit that white people do, do to one another. but
12: I guess, Like I said, it's part of the American culture. I think that's one of the reasons why, like Elon mentioned, is that there were news outlets that literally there are people working for news outlets that mentioned that they are not going to run his stuff because it's not good for business. And as a, a Fox News is a good example of just simply maintaining white superiority as your basic news. Anything else is all anything else is in, is is in play as long as it's all mess. As long as it's all rolled up with a message of white superiority, you can literally float an entire cable news network on it. So the yeah. idea everyone else doesn't want to lose viewers, so you can't you can't start or you can't just you can't start calling the looters protesters, and you can't start calling the peaceful p- uh, peaceful can't start running Elon stuff when he's being tear gassed because then some people will start thinking that, you know, you're loving those Negroes. And that's yeah, not good for business.
7: Just just a couple of days ago, Fox News was concerned. There was a Fox News segment that was asking whether or not describing Michael Brown as an unarmed teen was prejudicial. Yep. Whether that's misleading. I mean, it's a fact. He was unarmed. But they're concerned that saying that he was unarmed is misleading. Because it's misleading white people into thinking that maybe that cop didn't have a right to shoot him.
12: Yep. He's unarmed. And the thing about it is, you know, and and the thing about it is, if you if you just we need to we need to specifically say it's unarmed because we assume that as well, white folks assume that he's armed, and when a black person gets shot, they assume they must have done something wrong. So we're specifying to possibly possibly appeal to your humanity that maybe yeah. an unarmed black person doesn't need to be shot. Maybe a black person with a with a gun, whether it be a registered, licensed, whatever, that needs to be shot. But let's say an unarmed teenager. But like I said, we call him. Um, we quote. We call him. Uh, we call him an adult. Call him a yep. troublemaker. He's not an angel. We don't call him unarmed. We don't call him a teenager. Yep. We gotta talk about that time he was listening to uh, listening to uh, Two Chains and yep. rapping to himself about big booty women.
4: This is the Media Matters Minute, I'm Olivia Marshall. Following the shooting death of unarmed black teenager Michael Brown at the hands of police in Ferguson, Missouri, Fox News' Bill O'Reilly's proclivity for using tragedies and racial disparities to lecture the black community was on full display on
5: The O'Reilly Factor.
10: Do we as a society, what do we do? Do we weigh in as the boy's father, and if it were my son I probably would have said the same thing. But he's obviously talking through an emotional prison, son is dead. He believes probably, I know he believes, that it, it was an injustice, that it was done for nothing. It was a murder. And many, many African-Americans believe that without knowing the facts. Do we criticize them or do we remain silent?
4: O'Reilly's history of offensive rhetoric has prompted the nonprofit organization Color of Change to launch a campaign calling on O'Reilly to apologize. According to Color of Change, quote, Bill O'Reilly must be held accountable for the dissemination of these harmful mistruths about black communities.
11: Obviously, the big news of the past few weeks, the town of Ferguson, Missouri, where the shooting by police of teenager Michael Brown has sparked a series of protests, which in turn sparked a, uh, let's say, stern response by police, who (laughs) appear to be auditioning for RoboCop. It's it's a story that has a lot of people outraged
10: and upset. I came back from vacation because I am furious. Of
11: course you are! (laughs) And black teenager gunned down in the street by police under suspicious circumstances, who wouldn't cut their vacation short to register their fury? You'd have to be a monster or, in my case, enjoying a particularly nice vacation. (laughs) But good on you, Mr. O'Reilly, for coming
10: back. Unless, of course, you're furious about something else. Furious. About how the shooting death of 18 year old Michael Brown is being reported and how various people are reacting to it.
11: Yes! <laughs> that is the outrage. <laughs> the shooting of Michael Brown and any lack of transparency from the police department responsible for said incident is outrageous in how it has been reported. <laughs> And I guess that's not the only reason to be angry. Is he going to get a fair shake, this officer? There has been a rush to judgment.
4: Eric Holder flies into Ferguson,
11: yeah.
2: you
4: know, with his, with his, you know, superhero cape. This mantra of the unarmed black teenager shot by a white cop,
6: you know, that description in and of itself actually colors
11: the way in which we look at this story. Yes, describing the actual facts of the case. <laughs> really does color the way we look at it. White cop shoots unarmed black teen does sound terrible. Whereas, say, hero cop kills alien hunting humans for sport would put a completely different spin on things. Which, though a very accurate description of the plot of Predator 2, is in this case... uh, Not what happened. And you know what? There's so many other stories out there.
10: Why aren't we covering New York? Why aren't we covering black-on-black
11: crime? Yes! Why all the interest in holding police officers to a higher standard than gangs? They both flash colors, and yes, one of them has been sworn to protect and defend, but still...
10: Well, this weekend, 42 people were shot in Chicago. You know, I don't, I don't see the protests. I don't see the anger. If
1: I were African-American, I would be outraged that more journalists aren't covering what's happening in Chicago and more outraged that people like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson don't head to those areas.
11: Yes. What could explain the lack of outrage about Al Sharpton and his ilk not doing anything about black-on-black violence in Chicago? With Chicago's
1: violence making national headlines,
6: a group led by the Reverend Al Sharpton plans to convene an anti-violence summit
11: of national civil rights leaders here. Oh, that's right, because African-American leaders did hold a summit about that in November. (laughs) And I've met at least three times in the city just in the last 13 months. Which is not to say it's been effective, but taken along with the President's My Brother's Keeper initiative, which attempts to address this violence and the countless vigils and marches within these violence-torn communities means they are trying, actually, to do something. You see, you being ignorant of those attempts doesn't mean the issue itself is being ignored in the same way that when it snows where you live doesn't mean the world isn't getting hotter. Um... (laughs) Oh, you know what? There's something else bothering you, isn't there? When a cop pulls me over, I say, I put my hands outside of the car. If I'm carrying a weapon, which I'm licensed to carry in New York, the first thing I tell the police officer is, Officer, I want you to know I have a a legal firearm in the the car. And then, I brace myself for the taser. (laughs) Well, without getting into the fact that you get pulled over so much by the cops that sometimes you're carrying a weapon, sometimes you're not. I don't know. It just depends on how I'm feeling that day. But uh, continue. I often would, would even take my, my step out of the car, lift my shirt up so we could see where the gun is. You really do have no idea, do you? You really do. Basically, basically you're saying... If only Michael Brown, instead of holding his hands over his head, had reached down to his waist and lifted up his shirt to show the gun he did not actually have (laughs) this whole tragedy could have been avoided do you not understand that life in this country is inherently different for white people and black people
5: a lot of people are trying to make this dana about black and white and trying to make this about race this is part of this effort to make it everything about
10: race is this a story about race do we know
6: that i think it is playing the race card and i think
9: it's disgraceful the only racial divide that is created here is
5: being created by the race baiters. You know who talks about race?
0: Racists.
11: (laughs) Did you just... He who smelt it dealt it racism? Did you really... Forget that in Ferguson, 94% of the police are white and 63% of the people are black. Forget that 92% of police searches and 86% of car stops are for black people. Forget that the white municipal government finances nearly a quarter of its annual budget through the fines and penalties disproportionately leveled against the black portion of the population. Forget that the history of this town includes this tasty nugget. A 52 year old man named Henry Davis said that four Ferguson police officers beat him, then charged him with damaging government property because his blood had gotten on the officer's uniforms. So let me get this straight. You guys got tanks, but you can't keep a couple of tide sticks around? Because here's, here's the problem with everything that's, that's going on in this conversation. This isn't all about just one man killed in one town. It's about how people of color, no matter their socioeconomic standing, face obstacles in this country with surprising grace. Look at look at how upset you all get about certain things.
10: Tonight, Christmas under attack. Why are we allowing anti Christmas
6: madness. Why do I have to drive around with my kids to look for nativity scenes and be like, oh yeah, kids, look, there's baby Jesus behind the, the Festivus pole look, look.
11: made out of beer cans. It's nuts. Remember? <laughs> Remember? You were, you were furious that America's 11-month-long celebration of Christmas wasn't enough. But now, if you can, just... Imagine that instead of having to suffer the indignity of a festivist pole blocking something <laughs> you could have just set up in your own yard anyway. Imagine that instead of that, on a pretty consistent basis, you can't get a f-ing cab, even though you're a neurosurgeon, because you're black. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that every, I guarantee you that, that every person of color in this country has faced an indignity from the ridiculous to the grotesque to the sometimes fatal at some point in their, I'm going to say, last couple of hours <laughs> because of their skin color. Quick story. So we live in New York City, a liberal bastion. Recently... <laughs> let me finish (laughs) recently we sent a correspondent and a producer to a building in this liberal bastion where we were going to tape an interview the producer white dressed in what could only be described as homeless elf attire (laughs) and a pretty strong five o'clock from the previous week shadow strode (laughs) confidently into the building preceding our humble correspondent a gentleman of color dressed resplendently in a tailored suit who do you think was stopped let me give you a hint the black guy (laughs) and that (laughs) happens all the time all of it race is there and it is a constant you're tired of hearing about it imagine how exhausting it is living it
5: from Cleveland, watching the news uh, and all these shows and all the pundits in the wake of Ferguson I can't d- explain how frustrated I am seeing the clips of Bill O'Reilly who is still vehemently denying white privilege existence in America and that the, the media are the people making this about race on one episode and I, I wish I had to clip the clip to forward to you He went on to talk about how he made it, how he was painting houses when he was younger in Levittown. The man is from Levittown, a a place that was designed and set up by the U.S. government. That redlined, and for those of you who don't know what redlining is, made it impossible for a minority to buy a house there. I mean, it's so infuriating to listen to the idiocy of people who, I mean, sadly, They've been so compartmentalized and shell and shielded in their life that they are so wrapped in white. God, they're so wrapped in white privilege that they don't even know it. Yet they turn around and instead of possibly having an objective mind, they just believe that it doesn't exist. And I guess this just speaks to the point of being objective in this country and. You know, basically, it all comes down, all our problems, they're intertwined, they are. It all comes down to looking at facts and history, which no one does. Um, Wade and I have now been talking quite a bit on the importance of knowing your history and an education. And I don't mean you have to go to college. I mean, you have to read books and keep your eyes and ears open, deny the polarization of this country from getting further and just being more understanding and accepting of other people. Anyway, love the show. Sorry this is so long. Bye.
9: Hey, Jay. It's Wade again. You know, between the ages of 12 and 17, I was a part of the Police Explorer Program, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically like the Boy Scouts, except instead of learning how to survive in the wilderness, you learn law enforcement. You know, we had like weekly meetings and national conventions. We got to ride out with actual police officers on patrol. It was a blast. I mean, as a kid, I loved it, and I loved the police. And I've in my in my adult life, I've never had a negative interaction with a police officer ever. Not one time. Uh, I mean, I've had tickets, but they've always been nice. I've called them out on a couple of you know vandalism things, or you know, somebody stole something from my front yard one time. You know, things like that. Never had a bad interaction with them. I should be the poster child for what a a police cheerleader looks like. That's what I should be. But I'm not. There is no view that I've ever had in my whole life that's turned 180 degrees more than my view of police in America. I distrust the police. I don't particularly like the police. And I've never had a bad experience. Why is that? Well, I mean, because I have access to YouTube. I watch the show Cops. I I see the interactions that I'm not a part of in my own community. And I don't like what I see. I don't like how the police look, how they talk to people, how they act, the amount of power that they have. I I view this as a huge problem. And, you know, Ferguson, Missouri, this is not going away. Even if it dies down, there will be another incident. People are truly fed up. If Ferguson, Missouri is properly policed, prior to this shooting incident, those protests at that magnitude don't happen. There's just no way they happen. But because of years and years and years and years and years of abuse, people are, they're exploding. They're letting it out. Good for them. That's, that's, I I mean, it makes me want to go up there and join the protesters and watch that beat. If I, if even a guy like myself looks at them negatively, something seems to be horribly wrong. And if we push on this issue and roll back the power of the police and the militarization of the police, well then, my God, look at all the things you were talking about, all the interconnectivity of these things. You can start rolling back the power of the police, the prison complex, the war on drugs, restoring the Fourth Amendment. All these things can start rolling back, which is all positive. Every single one of those is positive. The very first thing that has to happen, though, is that that to get the ball rolling, at least, is to get the police looking like the police again. And and, uh, to me, this is so simple and so obvious. And it appears to me that the rest of the country, the vast majority of the country, is saying, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Let's do that. That's the first step. And we'll see how this goes. I'm very anxious about the future, about what we're going to see when it comes to this. Is Ferguson going to be the moment? And I hope it is. It sure feels like it could be. And you know, you know, I'm, I'm with the protesters up there, you know, I, I support them. I hope to God that, that, that somebody listens, somebody in power listens and says, we got to change, man. We got to change our uniforms, our tactics, the way we talk to people. We got to change all that around. Or or this is just unsustainable. That my thoughts on it, Jay. How're we going?
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Kate Klubuzik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I, I just want to say, before I get started on anything else, I wanted to give a quick sort of targeted uh, reminder that if your name is something other than Colin from Cleveland, or Wade from Fort Worth, Texas, you are absolutely allowed to call into the show. And uh, and probably, I receive fewer voicemails than you think I do, and your chances of being played on the show are uh, potentially greater than you might think they are. So, not that I don't love the messages I get from Colin and Wade, but uh, I've been getting a lot recently, which is great, but I've been sort of shocked at how few messages have been coming in from literally anybody else. So just another quick reminder, that number again, 202-999-3991. Colin, if you have something to say. Uh, Speaking of Colin and Wade, though, you might have heard uh, Colin mention during his message uh, this right here.
5: Wade and I have now been talking quite a bit and the importance of knowing your history.
0: And you would be forgiven for assuming that what he was referring to is that he and Wade have been calling in a lot recently, and they've sort of had a little exchange back and forth, and they have just been leaving messages and talking about various things a lot on the show recently. I don't think that's what Colin was referring to, because uh, Colin got in touch with me and asked me to put him in touch with Wade, and the last I heard they 've been having uh, you know full fledged wonderful conversations one on one on their own, completely separate from the show, which is great i I, I love that a, uh, a some sort of a friendship has apparently uh, blossomed over all this but what it made me think is that if Colin and Wade are getting on the phone and hashing out politics and talking about the importance of knowing one 's history and, and You know, going through all the ins and outs of whatever it is they're talking about. That sounds like a show I would listen to. I haven't run this idea by either of them, but I would just just want to put out there that, uh, you know, if you guys felt like starting a podcast, I would totally help out with that and would be your first listener. Just an idea, just throwing it out there, but speaking of Wade calling in a lot, he actually calls in more often than I have time to play him on the show, so there's a message from a couple of months ago that I never played because I just didn't want to get into the subject, and we've been over it before, but now, uh, just a couple of days ago, I was sent a pretty interesting article that so perfectly addresses Wade's voicemail from a couple of months ago that I decided, all right, I'll play his message now to set it up, and then pretty much read this entire article to you because that's how good I think it is. Uh so first Wade's message.
9: Hey Jay Wade again, um second point to the reparations episode is you had a one particular clip in there and I can't remember who it was, but they said that talking about how terrible the term straight white male privilege is. And I remember it must have been two years ago I called in and um was you came up with a with an analogy about uh basically you know, I'm paraphrasing here about popular kids in school and about how they got the privilege. And I called back and told you that it was a uh, very insightful and it actually kind of opened my eyes. But instead of like we we just you just kept going on that course of that term, straight white male privilege. When I hear that term, I, basically all I do is tune out whatever the person is saying past that point because I feel like it's a uh, It makes me feel like I'm supposed to be, you know, ashamed or something, which is never going to happen. I'm never going to – I'm just telling you that. I'm not trying to be an asshole, but that's – I'm never going to feel bad about that. So you need to change that term. All right, do it or no, and I don't really care. But what I'm saying is that if the goal is to further the conversation with me about – or people like me – about race relations in America, starting the conversation off with white male privilege – that's that's really not a good a good way to do that because I think most people are kind of like me. We just tune it out. I'm not saying it exists or it doesn't exist. I'm not quite sure, but I'm not going to listen to what you say when it starts off with basically saying, "Hey, you, you, everything you've earned in life is a little bit, you know, tarnished. It, it's not as worth as much as, as a black person." Basically, now. You may not be saying that, but that's what I'm hearing. And I've been hearing it for the, what, two and a half years I've been listening to this show. So I'm just saying that's the reaction that uh, that I, I get, that I have, and I think it's the reaction that a lot of white Americans feel when you say that term. And so maybe go back to your analogy, come up with a different term. It might help for the conversation, okay? So just want to throw that out there as well. Right, Jay, have
0: now, any longtime listener will most likely be familiar with my affinity for good analogies. Uh, I, I think that they are always imperfect, but they are very, very often uh, if very effective ways of getting messages across that you know wouldn't otherwise get through. But as you just heard, for whatever reason, there is a blockage. And it's not—it's definitely not just Wade. A lot of people just have this block when they hear the concept of privilege. It feels like an attack. No matter how many times a person says, I'm not attacking you, I'm just describing a reality, that's how it feels. So just a couple of days ago, I got an email from listener Elaine, who actually mentioned that she was aware of the concept of white privilege only because of this show, which I'm very uh, happy to hear. I mean, I, I wish there was more talk about it so that I wasn't informing people for the first time, but it's nice to know that I'm informing some people. And so she sent me this article. Uh, the author of the, of the article is just uh, J. Dowsett, and it's from it's just like a personal blog post. The blog is titled a littlemoresauce.wordpress.com. It's just a WordPress blog. And uh, this article is titled, What My Bike Has Taught Me About White Privilege. And so I, I'm literally just going to read Very liberally from this article because he says it better than uh, I would on my own. And I will link to this. I highly encourage you to, uh, you know, go find it in the show notes and share it with everyone you come across. So here, here's, uh, the article in almost its entirety. The phrase white privilege is one that rubs a lot of white people the wrong way. It can trigger something in them that shuts down conversation or at least makes them very defensive. It comes from the fact that nobody wants to be a racist, and the move, you only think that because you're looking at it from the perspective of privilege, or the more terse and confrontational, check your privilege, kind of sounds like an accusation that someone is a racist if they don't already understand privilege. And the phrase white privilege kind of sounds like You're a racist, and there's nothing you can do about it because you were born that way. And if this is what white privilege meant, which it is not, defensiveness and frustration would be the appropriate response. But privilege talk is not intended to make a moral assessment or a moral claim about the privilege at all. It is about systemic imbalance. It is about injustices that have arisen because of the history of racism that birthed the way things are now. It's not saying you're a bad person because you're white. It's saying the system is skewed in ways that you maybe haven't realized or had to think about precisely because it is skewed in your favor. I am white, so I have not experienced racial privilege from the, quote, underside firsthand. But my children and a lot of other people I love are not white. And so I care about privilege and what it means for racial justice in our country. And one experience I have had firsthand, which had helped me to understand privilege and listen to privilege talk without feeling defensive, is riding my bike. Now, I know it sounds a little goofy at first, but stick with me, because I think this analogy might help some white people understand privilege talk without feeling like they're having their character attacked. About five years ago, I decided to start riding my bike as my primary mode of transportation, as in on the street, in traffic which is enjoyable for a number of reasons—exercise, wind in your face, the cool feeling of going fast, etc. But the thing is, I don't live in Portland or Minneapolis. I live in the capital city of the epicenter of the auto industry, Lansing, Michigan. This is not, by any stretch, a bike-friendly town, and often it is downright dangerous to be a bike commuter here. Now, sometimes it's dangerous for me because people in cars are just blatantly assholes to me— If I'm in the road where I legally belong, people will yell at me to get on the sidewalk. If I'm on the sidewalk, which is sometimes the safest place to be, people will yell at me to get in the road." People in cars think it's funny to roll down their window and yell something right when they get beside me or to splash me on purpose. People I have never met are angry with me just for being on a bike on their road, and they let me know with colorful language and other acts of aggression. I can imagine that for people of color, life in a white-majority context feels a bit like being on a bicycle in midst of traffic. They have the right to be on the road and laws on the books to make it equitable, but that doesn't change the fact that they are on a bike in a world made for cars. Experiencing this when I'm on a bike in traffic has helped me to understand what privilege talk is really about. Now, most people in cars are not intentionally aggressive towards me, but even if all the jerks had their licenses revoked tomorrow, the road would still be a dangerous place for me because the whole transportation infrastructure privileges the automobile. It is born out of a history rooted in the auto industry that took for granted that everyone should use a car as their mode of transportation. It was not built to be convenient or economical or safe for me. And so people in cars, nice, non-aggressive people, put me in danger all the time because they see the road from the privileged perspective of a car. E.g., I ride on the right side of the right lane. Some people fail to change lanes to pass me, as they would for another car, or even give me a wide berth. Some people fly by just inches from me, not realizing how scary and dangerous that is for me, like if I were to swerve to miss some roadkill just as they pass— These folks aren't aggressive or hostile toward me, but they don't realize that a pothole or a buildup of gravel or a broken bottle, which they haven't given me enough room to avoid because in a car they don't need to be aware of these things, could send me flying from my bike or cost me a bent rim or a flat tire. So the semi-driver who rushes past throwing gravel in my face in his hot wake isn't necessarily a bad guy. He could be sitting in his cab listening to Christian radio and thinking about nice things he can do for his wife. But the fact that the system allows him to do those things instead of being mindful of me is a privilege he has that I don't. This is what privilege is about. Like drivers, nice, non-aggressive white people can move around in the world without thinking about the, quote, potholes or the, quote, gravel that people of color have to navigate. Or how things that they do, not intending to hurt or endanger anyone, might actually be making life more difficult or more dangerous for a person of color. Nice, non-aggressive drivers that don't do anything at all to endanger me are still privileged to pull out of their driveway each morning and know that there are roads that go all the way to their destination. They don't have to wonder if there are bike lanes and what route they will take to stay safe. In the winter, they can be certain that the snow will be plowed out of their lane and into my lane, not the other way around." And it's not just the fact that the whole transportation infrastructure is built around the car, it's the law, which is poorly enforced when cyclists are hit by cars, the fact that gas is subsidized by government and bike tires aren't, and just the the general mindset of a culture that is in love with cars after a hundred years of propaganda and still thinks that bikes are toys for kids and triathletes. So when I say the semi-driver is privileged, it isn't a way of calling him a bad person or a manslaughterer or saying he didn't really earn his truck, but just a way of acknowledging all that—infrastructure, laws, government, culture, and the fact that if he and I get in a collision— I will probably die, and he will just have to clean the blood off his bumper. In the same way, talking about racial privilege isn't a way of telling white people they are bad people or racist, or that they didn't really earn what they have. It's a way of trying to make visible the fact that the system is not neutral. It is not a level playing field. It's not the same experience for everyone. There are biases and imbalances and injustices built into the warp and woof of our culture. Not because you personally are a racist, but because the system has a history and was built around this category race, and that's not going to go away overnight or even in a hundred years. To go back to my analogy, bike lanes are relatively new and still just kind of an appendage to a system that is inherently car-centric. So, white readers, the next time someone drops the P word, try to remember they aren't calling you a racist or saying you didn't really earn your college degree. They just want you to try to empathize with how scary it is to be on a bike sometimes, metaphorically speaking. As I said, I'll put the link in the show notes. I I couldn't have said it better myself. It's, It's the best analogy I've heard so far to explain the difference between Privileged language and and the concern that uh, Wade had with just not being able to get past that feeling like people are trying to get him to feel uh, you know bad about being white or whatever. So hopefully that clears it up. But I have one last idea to leave you with because I could not help but be reminded by this article of one of my favorite episodes of one of my favorite non political podcasts called Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. I highly, highly recommend that you check out episode 76, the modern Moolok of 99% Invisible. This is the first like one minute of the show uh, to wet your whistle.
12: If you live in an American city and you walk outside to a major
3: intersection and look into the streets, you know what you'll see.
12: You'll see cars and trucks and buses. You might see a few bicycles trying to sneak their way through the traffic.
3: What you won't see are people, not on the street anyway, maybe on the sidewalk waiting for their turn to cross, and then crossing quickly, hurrying to get out of the way so that the cars
0: can get going again.
12: In recent times some of us have come to think the city streets shouldn't just be for cars and trucks. That cars take up too much space and release too much carbon, just to move a couple of people a short distance. But even those anti-car haters, and I am one, we know the streets belong to our enemy. We look both ways before crossing. We don't let our children play in the streets. And we might sometimes jaywalk across the street at the wrong place or time. But we know in our heart of hearts we're in the wrong. Scofflaws. That's
3: our reporter, Jesse Dukes.
12: Because I actually love cars, but just... I just don't think they make sense in the city and
3: this is a story about jaywalking where that word jaywalking came from and how it was a weapon in a turf war between the people who wanted cars in the streets and everybody
2: else you can probably guess who won
0: so as you may be able to tell just from that first minute this whole episode is about the anatomy of the change of a paradigm the world went from being a place where pedestrians could walk in the street without concern to the world we live in now, and we had to get from there to here somehow. This episode explains exactly how that happened, and the way I see it, anti-racism work is about creating a similar change in our current paradigm. Our current paradigm is skewed in the way the article describes that our entire infrastructure is set up to privilege whiteness over all else in America. And so anti-racism work is about shifting that paradigm so that that privilege goes away, which has nothing to do with being anti-white. It's simply about making things equitable for everyone. Obviously, I will also include a link to the episode of 99% Invisible in the show notes. We squeezed in a lot today, so that is going to be it for now. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a and
2: shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our own sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our own sad stories.